some bands bust their asses in Ireland and become well known on the local scene. But the smart ones, they get out of here before they get stale. They move on. And as we've seen a couple of times now, they can be really successful in other countries without even being so well known here, even at an early stage in their careers. Now, Dead Label have been making waves in Ireland. It's not like they're unknown, but they've already done so much more. Storming gigs in America, the UK, Europe and even Japan, a long way from their home in Selbridge in County Kildare. And they have learned a lot these last three or four years. So today we're talking to their drummer, Claire Percival. She may have a gentle voice, but she packs quite a snare stroke. She's the band's drummer and she is one sharp cookie. I really know you're going to enjoy hearing from her because it was so good to have a chat uh, with someone who's so clued in to the music and the business of the music. Anyway, this is the Metal Ireland podcast, produced and reported by MetalIreland.com. Episode number 28. Now, just before we start properly, I can't let it go unremarked that it has been an incredible few months for Irish bands, particularly on the festival circuit this summer. They have been everywhere. We've had Jora at Wacken, we've had Gamma Bomb and Dead Label at Metal Days, we've had Verkerlach, Dead Sovereign, Stereo Nasty and Zom, they've been at Metal Magic in Denmark, and there was no less than, let me count this, Psychosis, The Crawling, Ten Ton Slug, Raven Bitch of the North, Two Tales of Woes, Latin Era, all of those guys at Bloodstock. And of course I'm leaving people out, there have been more too. People, we have never, never had it so good. Irish bands have never gotten that kind of coverage, so I just want to say, pretty big wow uh, for all those bands, all those Irish metal bands that have got out, hit the festivals in a way that is unprecedented. So, I mean, what a way to start this podcast, it's great. And actually, that is where we're going to start the podcast, because Claire... Claire Percival from Dead Label has just gotten back from Bloodstock where she saw one of the most inspirational bands on her career that she's been wanting to see for ages. Uh, I just went over because Good Hero were playing and I just couldn't wait any longer to see Good Hero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, the Irish bands that were playing were brilliant. Um, I missed, unfortunately, I missed Psychosis because they played uh, Thursday night. Mm-hmm. Um, but they nailed it so like they, they were well able to manage without one Irish supporter but uh, um, I saw Two Tales of Woe who I've actually been a big fan of for years like I've known those guys for years and years so it's great to see them do so well they packed the Jaeger tent like it was spilling out onto the uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the layout of Bloodstock but the main stage the Jaeger tent is kind of almost uh, adjacent to it mm-hmm. so uh, it was spilling out like people were kind of coming from the main stage crowd to the Jaeger tent so that was brilliant and Tent on Slug apparently packed their tent as well so it was really it was really cool to see everyone do so well and um, it's kind of like the Irish contingent is getting bigger over there so it's great <laughs> yeah it really really is sort of unprecedented to have so much uh, Irish talent in one place at one time on a, on such a significant festival. Yeah, absolutely. And we actually played um, Metal Days. Uh, two, it was like two weeks before Bloodstock, and there was a good few Irish bands there as well. Like um, Overoth, those guys played, um, and Gamma Bomb played, 
and there was another Irish band and I always mess up the pronunciation of their name but they nailed it as well and <laughs> okay. um, so there's like the the two festivals I've been at this year has been a good kind of Irish stronghold so I'm happy about that <laughs> yeah it's interesting because we've had some debate recently just on Metal Ireland about you know this topic comes around honestly once every year but you know the Irish scene's dead and people say, you know, oh, God, it's just awful. Nobody's coming out to gigs. No kids are interested. Uh, the bands, you know, are so-so. But actually what's happening out there in the real world kind of contradicts that a bit. Yeah, like, I do I do agree that the, the Irish scene can be a bit hit and miss. Um, like, there's been really good gigs on that the attendance hasn't been great. And then there's other gigs that the attendance is great. And there's... It's very hard to, to pinpoint what it is that makes the difference because you could have the same lineup in two different weekends and they'd be they'd be totally different attendances and it makes no sense. But the Irish bands, I think, are starting to do really well. Um, I don't know what's, what's changing. Um, maybe people are just kind of putting themselves out there a little bit more. Uh, the Metal to the Masses is a, is a big help as well, like the whole... Uh, Irish Metal to the Mass connection to to Bloodstock. I think that's given people kind of um, you know, uh, the ability to to reach for something that would be a lot harder to get to without the Metal to the Mass competition. So I think that might that might have a big uh, big impact on what's changing. You know, like when you're saying about the the what's going on in the real world versus what people are talking about, and. Um, they do be packed to the rafters and that night like the when it, it's the final has nothing to do with the audience vote now obviously if you have a good crowd the judges would be more impressed but like there's no audience vote on that night and it does be favors does be absolutely packed it's probably the busiest like the last two like kind of i wasn't actually i'm not even talking about the final sorry i was at a, a a semi-final mm-hmm. and it was one of the busiest gigs I've seen in Fibbers this year like it was outrageous so um, I think that's having a lot to do with it because I, I don't think people have quite clocked this in Ireland yet that, you know, your, your new album sounds absolutely massive, huge but the reason the reason for that is because it was recorded in LA, is that right? It was recorded in Hollywood? Uh, yeah, well, it was, it's basically, it, it sounds it sounds a little bit more, um, I don't know, glamorous than, than it was. It's just the way things happened. Like we're signed to um, an independent label that's based in America, mm-hmm. and there was kind of a lot of talk for a while about us going over to play just small gigs over there, and um, it kind of the way it worked out was like they they wanted us to record over there so that they could be more present. Yeah. Um. It just kind of the way things worked out. Like we didn't really plan. We ha- we just wrote the album and we were kind of like when we were ready to record. It sort of the opportunity came up and we, we took it, but um, we didn't we can't really take credit for that being like foresight or anything like that, you know. But I mean, um, even the fact it, that the, even the well, let's take it back a step further. So how how does a band from Cell Bridge get on the roster of a label in uh, in LA in the first place? I mean, what how did that connection even happen? Um, 
I think after we played with Machine Head and we were we were going to Japan for the first time that year as well. It was like 2012. Um, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. So you've actually been, not only have you been playing gigs now, you've actually been playing in Japan. Yeah, well, we've, we played in Japan twice. We've been to Japan two times, um, but this years ago, God... 2012 and 2013. I don't think I don't think you were even that well known in Ireland in 2012. Let alone no, no, no. What? What? what, Tell me this: was it was it a glorified? Was it a holiday where you played a gig, or did you actually go over to play gigs? Yeah, well, we basically we did our first video, so the video for self-immolation, and um, I got an email from a guy saying he ran a festival called Rocktoberfest mm-hmm. which was um, in Okinawa which is at like the very bottom of Japan and it was it's um, a military base so an American military base right. and he just liked our video and he ran this festival and um, so it's like one day is a metal day and one day is like a punk day yeah. and it's a open day for the locals and the military to kind of mix it's like a and art, it's funded by the military anyway. And he just said, did we want to come and play? And that they'd pay for our flights and they'd bring us over and right. provide the gear and stuff. So, of course, we said yes, but we were very like, this is too good to be true. This is way too uh, there's, good there's a sort of Isn't there a scene like that in Spinal Tap or uh, somewhere where they end up playing a military base? <laughs> Seriously, is I, there? I, actually, I, I, haven't, so. I haven't seen the full movie of, uh, of Spinal Tap ever. I keep, I've seen the start of it like three times and I've never finished it because yeah. something odd. <laughs> But uh, that that would actually be very accurate to our life. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so we we said yes, and we you know it was like March, and the the festival was in October. So we were like, yeah, cool, we'll play in Japan, sure. Please don't kill us. And then we were like, well, we have to go because like, why would they put money into trying to kill three random people? Mm-hmm. So we went, and it actually turned out to be amazing. Like they the guy who booked it, he booked us. A club show the night before and that was like probably one of the best club shows we ever played even to this day like a, as a non-support act just a, uh, our own show it was probably one of the best shows because they did like so much promotion and we played at like 10 o'clock on, a, on an outdoor stage on the beach like 7,000 people and this is in 2012 <laughs> and we obviously had no uh no idea that that was actually going to happen. So we'd no merch, we'd no CDs, we'd nothing because we really thought like it was too good to be true. We were just not going to not go, you know. And then, yeah, so that was the first time. And then we went back the following year as well. Unfortunately, that festival got, uh, they don't do it anymore. I, I think they've changed it around. So it's, I don't know if it'll come back or not. I hope it does. But uh, yeah, so um, I can't remember what the first well, Yeah, I mean, the first thing was about going to LA and then I was surprised you played in Japan. So, so you then, you then somehow, uh, t- tell us the LA story. How did that all happen? Oh yeah, so basically when we when we played in Japan and because we played with Machine Head that year before we went to Japan, even though Japan was booked first, whatever way it landed, um, I had been kind of contacting people trying to get a booking agent and stuff, you know, the usual yeah, yeah. sort of slog that people do. And um, basically I started talking to one of the guys that works in the label and he kind of just kept in touch and there was a lot of phone calls and just kind of seeing what we're doing. And he took on our album... Sense of Slaughter that we did mm-hmm. with Rising Records, which was that you know that kind of Dud label. A lot of people. I, I, I think people I think uh, I think Dud is a rather charitable uh, explanation for that one, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But we, we, I mean, we got pretty lucky. Like we got our album out, so 
you know, uh, a lot of people put money into that that label and didn't get anything from it. So we we were pretty lucky. But anyway, this label took on Sense of Slaughter and re-released it, which was cool because it gave it like proper promotion and stuff. And then, um, yeah, they just kind of kept in touch with us through the writing process. And then it just sort of just kind of came to be like that it was it, it was never promised or never said to us that we would go to america when yeah. we signed with them it just so happened that they they wanted us to so uh we went and uh yeah we got we got extra lucky with the guy we recorded with because we had no part in that either and um he was recommended to our label by a producer and when he turned up on the day he was just like the most perfect engineer we ever met he's he got us straight away and he worked us to the bone and yeah that's how we got that album so. and he's he's also i mean he's recorded megadeth hasn't he yeah he's actually on tour with megadeth right now in like brazil or something i think um yeah he's done megadeth deftones bodum uh loads of loads of really big bands and we had no idea of any of this and if you talk to him he's such a laid-back dude like he, you wouldn't really know until he starts telling you a story and then he's like, oh yeah, that was, you know, Chino or something. Like, what the? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was extraordinarily lucky circumstances. You guys, uh, you, you've played Japan, you've you played America, you've been over to record there. I mean, how does this square with your daily life? I mean, how do all you how do you guys make time for this? How do you, how do you fund this and how do you do it? Um, well, we all have day jobs. Well, somewhat day jobs like we're probably all on the line of being fired for taking time off but I, I work in a drum shop and then um, Dan's a landscaper and Danny is a, a sign writer and we work really hard and we pour every single cent of our money into it and we sacrifice weddings family weddings and christenings and holidays and yeah we pour absolutely everything into it to be honest <laughs> um, but it's worth it it's totally worth it New album, I, I think it's a real. Um, it, it has moved you on significantly from Sense of Slaughter. I mean, if you don't mind me saying, Sense of Slaughter is kind of somewhat basic in its rhythms and its its, its oh, melodies. Oh yeah, absolutely. Sure, we hadn't a clue what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, um, I, I, yeah, you, you did have a clue because you know it was clear that there was uh, something there. But I have to say, um, Throne of Bones is, is um, oh, it's just a hell of a lot better. I mean, certain certain stuff in it. I mean, I, I'm thinking of. Um, you know, ominous, for example, or birth of suffering is is a real step up. I mean, you have that. Good, you talked about Gojira there. It has that Gojira feeling. Um, oh. What were you trying to do with it? Um, the album itself, like yeah, the whole album. Yeah. Basically, what what you said. Um, we were tr- like when we recorded Sense of Slaughter, we never demoed anything. We just wrote the songs, and then when we had enough songs, recorded them. You know, which is not the way you should do an album with this album we we started writing like we started writing basically the minute we finished sense of slaughter and we had i'd say we've scrapped we we recorded and scrapped like maybe 
you know, we had probably the guts of 15, 16 songs and we demoed them, changed them, uh, gigged them. We put them through every form of test they could possibly go through. And there isn't like a symbol hit or a, a word sang that the three of us didn't decide to do, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, even the structure, like we, we fought hard uh, with the layout of the album. Um, we we placed the songs in certain places on the album to you know, work with each other and stuff like that. So we approached it. Uh, in a completely different way and we took our time and um, we were just hoping that it would be a step up and that we kind of think of this as our album that we want people to think of as our sound and where Sense of Slaughter is just entering into the world have Mm -hmm. an album out and try and get gigs this is like who were you know the stepping stone of the rest of the music that we want to write you you say stepping stone I mean there are tracks on it that that clearly are a stepping stone to where you're going next and I'm thinking particularly of the the Gates of Hell song Um, (laughs) I I wonder would you be tempted to use I mean it just sounds huge it sounds it just sounds really big with all that piano and stuff would you be tempted to maybe go further down that road in future Um, we kind of we I mean we wouldn't rule it out at all Um. With with each song, it's uh, individually, and um, what we were, are doing with the writing that we're doing now is we just do what suits the song. So if we're writing a song and it feels like it needs something, or you know something would sound cool with it, we would we would put it in or reduce it. But we wouldn't necessarily go in going, okay, we need to write another song with piano. It would be if the song lended itself to a piano part. Mm it would go into it and mm-hmm. um, that's kind of how we approach every song so that's like like you know some of the reviews we got people were like oh there's no singing and um, we haven't ever made the decision that we're never going to have singing on the album mm-hmm. or that we will have singing it's rather if a song organically needs singing it will have singing if that sure. makes sense you sound you're, so. you sound incredibly wise about your your, your <laughs> um your experience i mean i, I it's funny because i guess in you know okay so there you were in in japan in 2012 i mean those kind of situations really force the people in bands together and it you know it either makes or breaks bands and and, you know you've been out in la you've been worked hard as you said uh you've been worked to the bone you know that teaches you a lot and you you probably know more now than most bands will learn in in the 10 rubbish years that they're together uh just dawson around ireland you know do you ever do you ever feel that you have a sort of higher view of things now that you've kind of been around the block a wee bit um, I think we are very aware of um, the pitfalls. Like, uh, I we still have a lot to learn, and I still consider us babies. Like, especially when you spend a bit of time at the bigger festivals and you see how the big bands do stuff and the staff that they have. Oh, it's a military groups. operation, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. it's insane, and I I'd look forward to to being like that someday. But um, we definitely have learned um a lot about people in the industry and and what's expected and what you think of a, as a band and what business people think are just so far apart you know like when you're when you're a kind of band and you want a gig and you're like contacted a booking agent you're like oh if they just hear this song they're gonna love it obviously because yeah. we love it and it's not like that at all it's just about numbers it's just about fitting uh sometimes it's actually about the size of your band yeah like you know you'd be offered a tour let's say and if you have five members and and two crew 
you're less likely to get it than if you have three members and no crew because of the space. I mean, it's just crazy the things that, you know, you think when you're innocent to a little bit of touring and then when you actually tour, you realize how different, how different it can be. But um, what what has been the one thing that... What, what, what? Sorry to cut across you there, but that's a really fascinating thing because it, you know, there, it just comes down to mouths to feed, doesn't it? So, tell me, what would your um, advice be about the economics of going on tour to a band that is, say, just just about to break out of Ireland? Say there's a band, I don't know who they are, but say there's a band, they're just about to book a van and they're about to do it. Um, what is your advice about the economics of touring? Um, I would say. Have a shitload of money, <laughs> work hard and get a load of money that you can survive off. Um, don't think you're going to party. Like we, we never think like that, but some bands think that touring is partying and it's the exact opposite. Um, and have a load of merch that you can sell cheap. So like have a t-shirt that you can sell for a tenner because you know, if someone is going to go see, like, for example, a Fear Factory, they're going to want a Fear Factory t-shirt. It's like 25 euro. They're probably not going to buy a t-shirt off the opening band as well. But if you're a little bit cheaper, they might if they really liked you. And that's your bread and butter. And if you have enough merch to last, you can actually try and make back some of the cost of getting to the gig in the first place. Um, so merch is definitely important, like really, really well, important. Look, help, help a guy out here because let, let's just talk merch for a second. I think this is something that confuses so many Irish bands, or at least it, it, if it doesn't confuse them, um, it certainly ends up costing them a lot of money and a lot of piled high T-shirts under their garage. You know, <laughs> so, so is it small, medium or large or extra large? And what should you prioritise? God, it's actually, well, if you're touring in Europe, um, like a couple of different countries you need everything because you cannot predict like we really thought we could predict it because in Spain you'd find in Spain people like small medium they yeah. just like the way they fit in Germany they like extra large even though all these people could be the same size and the one thing I definitely suggest not suggesting to someone a size that's never good no. <laughs> I've done that and it, it doesn't it doesn't go well and okay. um, but you literally cannot predict it I mean we we've tried a lot like in America they like a lot bigger sizes and yeah. um, in Europe it's every country is different every country is vastly different and every crowd is different as well like um, you know we've played festivals in the Czech Republic uh, and sold a lot of medium mediums and then you go and you play in uh, with Fear Factory on that Demon Factory tour there was an older crowd because it was an yeah, anniversary yeah, tour yeah. and they would all they would all like large it just you can't you can't yeah, so, so you it. just you just buy up as much as you can and reprofile to the gigs yeah pretty yeah, much um, okay. I don't think you could ever if you plan on touring a lot I don't think you could ever have too much merch as long as it's a cool t-shirt or a simple t-shirt like if you go with something kind of too like dragony, you know, like something that you're you're kind of aiming it specifically to people that like those type of t-shirts. If you keep it sort of simple, uh, if someone just likes your band, they might they might buy it. Then you know, like we have a logo t-shirt that even like girls that are dressed really nice 
we'll buy and probably just use his pajamas and yeah, <laughs> that yeah. works for us so it be- beats my wife using my uh, you know Depeche Mode and Van Halen t-shirts so it's, there you <laughs> so, go <laughs> um, exactly so look that's a, that's a really good that's a really good piece of advice that uh, people definitely take on board I mean let, let's just talk about um, your rig at the minute so you work in a drum store so you clearly you clearly know your gear so what's what's your setup at the minute um my setup okay so i have a drum kit that actually got me my job because um i i fell in love with this drum kit that i have years ago and i kept visiting it in the store and uh, eventually obviously the the manager probably thought i didn't have a lot like a lot to do <laughs> um, and when a job came up he he offered it to me so um i have a yamaha oak x custom mm-hmm. so it's a it's a really loud uh drum kit i only use a three piece so it's like a 22 by 20 uh uh, 12 by six and a half mm-hmm. and a 16 inch floor tom mm-hmm. and um, my snare is actually a 12 inch and um, which is kind of unusual but uh it's it's really high mm-hmm. it cuts through all that like double bass and distortion yeah. Yeah. it's it's not the snare i use on the album i actually used a bell brass snare mm-hmm. um that the engineer turned up with on the day and was like just thought that i'd like it and i absolutely mm-hmm. fell in love with it mm-hmm. and <laughs> um, and uh, I use Zildjian cymbals, so I have my favorite on my cymbals are I have a twenty-one inch mega bell ride, so mm-hmm. the bell on the ride is absolutely ginormous. Um, I have an Oriental China, it's twenty inch, which is pretty big for a China, mm-hmm. but it's really loud as well. And then I recently just got some A Custom Master Sound hi hats that mm-hmm. are. I, I think they're probably the most metal recorded hi-hats in the world. I think everyone has recorded really? an album with them. What, what's so good about them? Um, oh, they just are really nice, like yeah. really kind of gushy. Yeah. Um, you know, like, uh, what's the word? Like, you know when you hear hi-hats and they're soft but they're loud? Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. kind of like that. Um, it's amazing, isn't yeah. it, the pleasure um, that cymbals and particularly a snare can give, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, it's it's ridiculous, and I see it every day in work, which is cool, you know. Like uh, it's really funny. People, it's like a real weird sensation that obviously people. Like, it, it's kind of like flowers or smells or something. If you hear a good symbol, the pleasure that it can give is 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 ridiculous, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, say actually, that's really true. Like I I know that that's true, but I haven't thought about it in that way. Yeah, it's it's good. Like a really nice or a really nice kick drum, mm. and I, you see that at sound checks, you know, like. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to like a Metallica concert where you're queuing real early and you can hear the bass drum and well, everyone everyone like, cheers so, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. <silly. laughs> that's always been a been one of my favorite things but um yeah and then I just have I've t- uh, two crashes um an A and an A custom and um yeah I just I I love I love cymbals um and I use I started recently. Uh, using a bass drum trigger mm-hmm. I was really against them for years because I thought because I'm a girl drummer people will think uh, I'm using a trigger because I can't play and all this stupid really uneducated stuff mm-hmm. and then I actually realised that it's harder to play with a trigger because if you're micing up a bass drum and you're playing like you know consistent double bass it's gonna be muffled a little bit so if your left foot is slightly behind your right foot it's not gonna sound any different Mm -hmm. because if you're using a trigger you have to be 100% sure of what you're hitting and what you're not hitting Mm -hmm. because it picks up everything Mm -hmm. and so it was it's 
it's a little bit, bit of a struggle for me to admit that I, I like the technology side of things because mm-hmm. I've always been super against it. But it's helping us because uh, it's a clearer kick sound. No matter well, it, what it, it, it works within your style. And I think as well, the, the idea I've often thought with triggers that as long as the tone is right on the kick drum, as long as there's no triggering on the snare or the toms, I think yeah. I think kick drum is an acceptable trigger. Um, That's exactly how I you know what I mean. That, yeah. But I I, do, I mean obviously hateful you know snare triggers is just fucking awful. But I think it is acceptable. I mean, there's so many bands triggered their kick drums as long as the life and the breath is in the top half of the kit. I think exactly. kick, kick drum triggers are you know I think people see that as I don't think people see that as a as a yeah. lesser thing you know. No, like, I, it was just like I was really uneducated myself about them. Mm. And I had seen at one festival we played, there was a dude uh, sound checking and he had his trigger on and then his hands were really light. You know, he was playing really light with his hands and I was like, oh, this is bullshit. Like, you know, this, this is why triggers are shit because that guy isn't playing hard and blah, blah. And then I just realised that was him. And it's actually like... I, I've seen like all the all the drummers I admire use a kick trigger because the sound is clear. I mean, there's no point in writing a song with really intricate bass drum parts with palm muting and then having it muffled to shit when you're playing it live. So um, yeah, I yeah. I kind of learned. It's really and I interesting. Was really lucky, Mike Mike in Fear Factor, he sorted out my whole trigger system because oh, no I haven't a clue how to like I I had this really shitty clicky standard rolling sound and he had this library of sounds on his laptop and he was like pick one and uh, I picked one and he was like okay and he just he was like okay you just need to press on and put this on here and he did the whole thing for me so you've got Fear Factory's <laughs> kick drum tone that's great yeah well I don't think it's actually theirs I, I think it's sim- it, um, it's more similar to a Motley Crue bass drum oh sound. okay alright yeah he, ha- he had like a whole illegal library of bass drums yeah no doubt <laughs> he had everything on there so uh, yeah it was pretty cool it was um, pretty cool yeah that, that's pretty awesome I mean I remember once and I, I kind of respected this actually I remember seeing Ackercock um, turn up to play in Belfast one time uh, David Gray, he's an awesome drummer, but he didn't even bother with bass drums. He just turned Did up. He? Yeah, he just turned up with two pressure pads, right? And the rest of the drum kit, full roto toms, full toms, full chinas, full cymbals. But he just didn't bother using kick drums. And I mean, if you're going to use triggers and you're going to be open about it, then fuck it. Why bother even putting them in the van? Yeah, that's actually, that's so weird. I, was I thought it was really brave, you know? Yeah. yeah, I mean, because it's still the exact same play, and you see what people, I think the old mentality of triggers was like, oh, it's playing it for you, but that's not the case at all. It, you have to be more accurate when you're using a trigger, and even more accurate if you're using those pads, because it's it's a direct signal, like there's no there's no hiding from it, you know? Yeah, indeed, indeed. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah, really cool. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I, have to, I have to ask, you, you probably know I have to ask, so, you know, there's a book out recently by um, Kim Gordon, um, Sonic Youth, and the title is Girl in a Band. Um, <laughs> you know, you, have you had to work extra harder, particularly on the drums, um, just either in terms of physically or just in terms of emotionally? Have you, you know, has it, has it been harder? Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, I do. I get. I get asked it a lot. And um, mm. when I first started, I I wasn't very good. Like I, you know, when I first started playing drums, I wasn't very good. And um, you know, we'd be playing like Eamon Dorns and stuff, and there would be people kind of going, "Oh, whose girlfriend are you?" or whatever. Yeah. Like, you know, really young kind of shit. But um, 
most of the time people are really really cool about it like if they if they say anything to me it's usually pretty positive um i used to get like maybe like three years ago i used to get oh you're really good for a girl and i think that kind of fueled me on to like you know try and get a lot better so that they'd stop saying for a girl and mm. um, but uh i do i mean i understand like it's it's a male dominated genre particularly like drumming in, in metal is, is very heavily and there's a lot of unbelievable metal drummers out there but um i i think it's it's the the walls are coming down a lot lately like people are really nice about it and usually like people are are really interested in in like the good side of it you know and um, physically as well i think it's it's fine um maybe when i'm old i don't know <laughs> it might be hard but uh yeah no um it's pretty cool i actually i found uh once human the the band that were supporting fear factory as well they had a mm-hmm. girl vocalist yeah. and um she she was like uh screaming you know the c word and yeah. like really but she was so pretty as well mm-hmm. and um she actually got more of a uh that kind of sexist thing mm. than than I did, um, probably because she looked really dainty and then was saying the stuff she was saying on stage, mm-hmm. which was like really good with the music. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in America actually, in America it was it was way more of a thing than oh, it is in Europe. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, like in places like Indiana and like we like we played in some. I don't want to say weird places, but we played it a little bit off the beaten track uh, once or twice and met some people that literally thought like it was totally insane that I was a girl playing drums. <laughs> okay. But yeah, it's yeah. I mean, it's 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 probably fairly annoying uh, for me to even bring it up, but it, it is just so like you know the scene is just so male oriented and particularly with, with with drummers as well. It, it's just always interesting. I mean, who 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 do you really rate? I mean, who who is if you could aspire to their technique what, what drummer do you like um me um i am absolutely obsessed with mario plantier's drumming mm, i mm-hmm. wish that i could play like him and with dave mclean's drumming if i could meld the, the two and take some of their skills mm. i'd be happy like uh, mario um he's he he is an actual artist as well mm-hmm. but i often like i find when he's playing it just looks so fluid yeah like he's playing really heavy stuff like really really heavy stuff but it just doesn't sound like like death metal like it doesn't sound like cannibal corpse drumming yeah it it's it's fluid and it moves with the music and it's it's together and it that's the type of style that i really like and then if you watch dave mclean live you just you yeah. can hear every single hit yeah. yet the whole world is thundering down and it's so heavy but it's so precise that's the type of style that i like and particularly for the, the type of music we write if i could nail that then i think mm. i'd be going in the right direction So I think judging by that double kick that Claire is very definitely going in the right direction. What a pleasure to talk to someone who's so into their music and, and is so enthusiastic about it. 
This has been the Metal Insight Podcast, produced and reported by Metal Ireland. Can I just say congratulations to all the winners of our summer competitions. We've sent people to Black Sabbath, Avatar, um, Avenged Sevenfold, Disturbed, uh, Saxon. We've got more competitions coming up, so keep checking into Metal Ireland. The next episode is going to be really special. It's someone I've been trying to track down for really a couple of years. Now, you know what I want to do is get the most interesting people and get them talking to you so that you can hear their thoughts well this person and i don't want to say too much about it but this person is a really really interesting uh, figure in heavy metal that I, I i really know you'll enjoy hearing from so make sure to catch that till then enjoy what remains of the summer over and out i'm earl gray keep reading metal ireland see you next time <laughs>